iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Daniels. Uh, joining us now to moderate today's event, please welcome Dave Carger from Entertainment Weekly. Thank you very much. Um, you've already met Jeff, and before I uh, show you the trailer of the movie The Answer Man, I'd like to introduce you to John Heineman, who wrote and directed the film. It's his very first feature, and he somehow got it accepted to the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, and you'll see why when you see how cute the trailer is. Uh, John Heineman. So here's the trailer for The Answer Man. Twenty years ago, an unknown writer spoke to God and heard the answers. His book became the greatest inspirational bestseller of all time, and the public has yearned to meet its reclusive author. I've been hoping to meet him. You'd hate him. Hell is other people. I actually sat in his presence. Hey, pretend person. If you're done hallucinating, I'd love a shot at being a customer in this place. You are a disaster, Arlen. It's all meaningless bull... What? My back is out! Try asking God for help. Any objection to me being next? We have a real patient. <laughs> Better? You are so... amazing. Thank you, Arlen. Faber. That's Arlen Faber? Who's Arlen Faber? Elizabeth, I would like to uh, go out with you. I would like to go out with you. And I hope you will call me back on my phone. The one here. Fuck. Ready to take control. Thought I heard you out here. Hi, Arlen. Hi, Alex. Great kid. Yeah, thanks. I bet you have some great parties here. Oh, no one has been in here for five years. Why doesn't he want anyone to know who he is? Maybe it's because he's supposed to have all the answers and he's a disaster. <laughs> I don't usually go for walks with people. I can use a little advice every now and then. I'm willing to make you a deal. You make him pay for his questions with books? Totally fair. No, it's not. It's awful. You haven't heard the questions. I'm blowing it again, aren't I? Look, you're complicated and confusing. Alex and I don't need that in our lives right now. Yes, you do. Jeff Daniels. I want her to like me. Lauren Graham. You're still a little out of whack, but you resemble something further along the evolutionary chart. Lou Taylor Pucci. Do I have a destiny, or is it all free will? So your pal Arlen is speaking here today, and I better get busy. I'm not a guy with answers. So you're just like the rest of us. Uh, not yet, but I'm trying. The Answer Man. John, the original title of this film was The Dream of the Romans. Correct. And when you wrote the film, uh, before you managed to get your producer, Kevin Messick, on board, your script was placed on a very famous list called The Blacklist, which is a, a list that gets compiled every year when agents and studio executives nominate the best unproduced screenplays that are kind of floating around in Hollywood. And in 07, your screenplay was on the list, along with Slumdog Millionaire and The Wrestler. Um, I'm curious about, with the two of you met for the, for the first time, how do you 
tell that an actor you're meeting with is right for the part that you've written? And how do you tell that a filmmaker is someone that you're able to feel comfortable with for months at a time to shoot the film? Well, I think it was a lot, uh, it was certainly an easier process uh, from my end because I have this like vast body of work that I can reference, you know, to look at and, and say like, oh, well, here he is in the hours being this kind of guy. Here he is in something wild being this kind of guy. Look at, here's the squid and the whale. Here's Gettysburg, right? Um, and, you know, you, you hope, dream that someone with that kind of range and that, that level of, uh, of skill set is even interested in reading your script in the first place, let alone um, maybe coming on board. So... From my end, it was just it was just all gratitude and, 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 and humility. How about yeah, for you? For me, part of it is is uh, you've got to trust people in this business. And uh, uh, the fact that John had, had written it and had written it so well meant that he knew it. So I really didn't care whether he could direct or not. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of movies where I had to direct myself. And um, so I, I just met with him, kind of used him. I Googled him. I resourced him because he knows the script. So and the character, so I just took a lot of notes and, and then figured that he knew enough or had people around him who knew enough to direct and move the camera around, which he did, and smartly hired really good people. And then you just give, you give yourself over to somebody like that and you make his movie. You don't try to make your movie, you make his movie. As people can notice in the trailer, uh, very early in in the film, your character, Arlen Faber, throws his back out. And it must be a good 10 or 12 pages in the script where you are on the floor. What, what are the particular challenges of, of doing that? First of all, how long of the shooting days were you actually on the floor or crawling on the street? And what are the challenges of shooting your actor when he's prone? Well, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're spread out in different days, so you know, he's not in a state of, 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 of spinal uh, distress um, <laughs> constantly. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge was um, just in, in trying to encourage Jeff that, yes, we did need him to crawl down the sidewalk yet again. Because uh, it's painful and it's hard and everyone in Philadelphia is on the other side of the street where you can't see being like, look at a guy. Why is Jeff Daniels crawling? Look at him go. But other than that, it's like, it's like shooting anything else, you know. I mean, I can't imagine the top of your head has seen so much screen time in a film that you've, that you've done before. Well, if you're on your back, it makes staging a lot easier, so you don't have to worry about staging. I, I thought it was funny, especially the sequence where uh, I was. I was crawling through the streets of Philadelphia on my hands and knees. And this being um, a smaller budget movie, they didn't have a lot of money for security. So I was sometimes crawling through real, live, living, breathing Philadelphians. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I like that kind of guerrilla filmmaking, kind of just roll camera and let's see what we get kind of thing. It was funny. Did it actually affect your, the health of your back? I mean, or what's your personal back history for both of you? I've, I've thrown my back out. You know, like anyone who's thrown their, their back out sees the movie and it's like, oh, dude, that's exactly right. It's just like that. You lie on the floor and you can't move. People who haven't go, that seems a little over the top to me. Right? And you're it's like, hey, shut up with you and your healthy back. You're totally wrong. It is. I threw my back out making a movie. I, I was like 45 or something and pretended I was 18, doing all this stuff with a bunch of stunt guys. And I went back to the hotel that night, reached down to get something off the floor and just kept on going. And you, you can't. It was Arlen. I couldn't get up. We shut down for four days. I couldn't. 
I did something back there. So I was able to just draw on that and repeat it, relive it. I read uh, an article where you said, I don't know if this was just advice that you were giving to somebody or if it was something that you live by, which is that you find it helpful to distill a character down to five words. Or you were telling this, this guy who was asking you for acting advice to distill a character to five words. No, I, it's, it's direction. And it seems to me that the really great directors the, that I've been lucky to work with, Jonathan Demme, Woody, Mike Nichols, uh, Robert Altman, you know, guys like that, can walk over to you and say it in five words or less or one or two words and try this one X and Y and walk away. They leave you to do all the details or to just spin it that X and Y into 17 other things based on that. And that's all I told John. I knew he knew how to write because of the script. And I was, I was, it was my way of making directing me easier was use your writing talent to pick two or three, four or five really good words, to, and then I'll do whatever you want me to do. And, and he did. It worked well. So what would some examples of that be? Things <laughs> like the five-word little gems that you use. Um, well, just as a, a point of contrast, you know, I mean, I, I certainly learned how to not only direct Jeff, but how to, how to direct from working with Jeff, uh, because through his, his patience, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the first couple of days... I would go up to him and I'm like, oh my God, I have to say something because this isn't exactly what I want. And it would be this long rambling diatribe that you would hear from someone who is like, let's say, putting their parachute together in the air. Right? This like monologue. And he would listen to me, right? And then he would go like, so it's a victory. I'm like, yes, it is. It's a victory. Right? And then show me what victory looked like. Um, but, you know, after, kinda, after I sort of figured out like what to do, by uh, you know halfway through the shoot, it was like it was like we were in a cowboy movie. We're like we were we were men of few words. Yes. I would w walk over to him and kind of sideways, not really look at him, and say, "Easy to say, harder to do." And he'd go, "Got it." I love it. It's like the haiku school of directing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very very minimalist approach. All right. Well, Arlen Faber is a great. It's such a great character. Really well brought to life and. He is uh, the kind of guy who has these two different sides, a real charming side and such a strong misanthropic side. Uh, before I ask you about that, I want to show everybody this great scene uh, with you and Tony Hale, who you'll recognize from Arrested Development, uh, who plays your mailman. Forgot one. Have a good one, Mr. Faber. You're all in favor. Oh, I can't believe it. I have read me and God like 40 times. My mother is not gonna believe this. Oh my God. Uh, I feel like I'm shaking the hand of God himself. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Yes, I will pray for you, believe me. No, that's not my question. Just one, please. One question on the condition that you can never, and I mean never, tell anyone that I live here. Swear it. I swear it. I swear it. Mr. Faber, is there such a place as hell? Yes, there is. I think it was Sartre who said it best, really, when he said, and I quote, hell is other people. You mentioned things that are e easier, kind of easier said than done. I would imagine one of them is 
making a not always likable character likable? I mean, is that what specific challenges does that create when you're putting a performance together? Uh, you, um, you don't. I don't worry about it very much, and I seem to be ever since Terms of Endearment, I seem to be that go-to guy to make that phenomenon happen. But all, as long, I think, as long as you show the struggle, if there is a struggle in the writing of him trying to be something other than he is, then I think the audience will at least understand you and go along with you, whether they like you, sympathize, root for you. That's star school image stuff. But, and it's also the writing and the directing. It's up to him to kind of construct it in that way. But I think if the struggle is there to be something other than what you are, then I think they'll go along. It also helps when your character throws his back out on the, in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. You can't help but feel yeah. really bad. Yeah. Pity, I guess, is really what, what you're saying, really <laughs> enables the audience to get into uh, the heart of a character. Right. <laughs> but it also makes you wonder. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this, John. Do you think making a not always likable character likable is something that any actor can do if he or she works at it hard enough or is that no. something that you can either do or you can't you can do it or you can't that's my that's my opinion um uh, and it's just that it's just an opinion um you know like jeff is likable like as a person like he's already a likable guy he's already a nice guy okay so like he's adding a layer onto that but that foundation exists there are people out there that that aren't likable that aren't nice, and when they try and pull it off, it just doesn't ring true. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, ah, I don't believe you. <laughs> You're not a nice guy. Right. Well, in crafting this script, because the character of Arlen Faber wrote this huge bestseller, Me and God, that's filled with kind of ethereal questions and answers, many of which we learn in the book, because he gets asked some and some are read. How did you come up with those? Just a lot of 3 a.m sitting around thinking about stuff? Oh, you know, it's like, it's like anything else that you're trying to write in a screenplay, you know? Like, I have this moment, there needs to be this question, there needs to be this answer. Um, uh, there's a line in the movie where um, someone asks Arlen about the, the questions, uh, the answers to the questions that uh, he's been asked, and he says, best advice that I, I had at the time and I meant every word. And that's kind of like, that's my response to, people ask me that a lot, like, hey, the answers to those questions, where did they come from? And it's like, I don't know, you know? They, I thought they were great at the time. I've revised my opinion on a couple of them. Um, but it's like, uh, it's not as hard as trying to write a joke. Right. But you have a fairly healthy cynicism for those kind of new agey books, don't you? Uh, you know, not for the books themselves. Because I've read a lot of those books. Um, and I think that they're great. And I think that any time that you try and further yourself um, in any way possible, that is a, a journey worth taking. Um, <clears throat> When I used to do stand-up, I had this bit about uh, spiritually actualized people, or saps, as I would call them. Um, people who didn't get the help that they needed, they just learned new words. Right? So they're not actually better. They're just saying, like, I'm really going to try and manifest that today. i got to make fun of you. You know? You're, you're, on, you're on, on my list now. Um, so, and I guess it's the cult of celebrity that, that, that surrounds... Um, I guess the self-help movement, um, but you can't fault anyone for, for trying to step up. When I was watching the movie, one of the things that I thought to myself, one of the questions uh, was, as I was learning about Arlen Faber, was why did he write this book 
if he was so afraid of the, the, the kind of mega fame that, that might come of it. And near the end of the film, once you learn more about him and, and his life, you, you do get the answer to that question. But I wondered if you ever found it helpful, do you create backstories for yourself of, of, the, of your characters beyond what the writer has crafted? No, no I, th I think uh, the less you clutter your brain, the better. But clutter, put, it, put good information in there. And again, I had good information. John had a backstory of sorts for me. It was a kind of a basic, here's how we get to page one. And that's all I needed. And then, then I, I kind of let instincts and impulses kind of fill, the, fill in the blanks. I found that sometimes actors are out there in front of the camera acting their backstory, and which means you're not listening and not right here. So I, I, I get just enough to to know what I'm where I'm coming from. I want to show you probably my favorite scene in the movie because with the Tony Hale scene, you see that Arlen Faber doesn't want anyone to know who he is and where he lives. But there's an experience he has where uh, he throws his name around for the kind of the first time in a really interesting uh, way. So let's show that clip. Uh, no, no, just, oh yeah. no, that's too much. No, take it. You're a miracle worker. <laughs> when can I? Uh, should I uh, come back? Yeah, you should be fine for about a week. So next week. <sighs> Thank you, Arlen. Faber. My name is Arlen Faber. My name is Arlen Faber. I believe you. Next week, Arlen. Thank you. That's Arlen Faber? Who's Arlen Faber? I mean, I would imagine that working with someone like Lauren Graham, she's someone that just with her facial expressions, she really is able to, you just, you just believe it. You believe that when he, he's, she's the back doctor who fixes his back and he's on his back and doesn't see her face until after he's been cured and then he whips around and realizes how gorgeous she is. But I would imagine it's just that the openness and the light in her face made it really easy to play against her. Well, yeah, she's, she's beautiful, and, and, but she's smart, and, uh, and, and most important, she knows comedy. She knows where the jokes are. She knows how to set up a joke. She knows how to ride a pause without getting caught. Where we don't get caught. You don't get caught seeing the script there, and, and that's, it's hard to do, and, and Lauren is great at it. I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I took it, was that she was involved. I want to talk a little bit about the title, because the film has had three titles that I know of. And first of all, I also want you to explain to me why it was called The Dream of the Romans, because that, that went over my head, I have to admit. And then when it played at Sundance, it was actually called Arlen Faber. And now that it's uh, being released by Magnolia Pictures, it's The Answer Man. I, I like The Answer Man, I have to say. But can you talk about that journey and it, whether you were cool with it or resistant to it or how did sure. the whole thing and, work? Sure, you know, there's a week left where it comes out. We can, we can change it a couple more times. If you guys like to write down on a slip of paper what you'd like for it to be called, I'm totally willing at this point. I've been beaten into submission. Um, it was called The Dream of, of the Romans for a scene that uh, ended up being cut from the film. Okay, so I didn't miss it. Right, so there was a scene in which uh, that title makes sense. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, a great, it was a great scene to read. Um, but in, in putting the movie together, in editing it, um, I found that uh, really I just cared about Jeff and Lauren's characters. You know, like once they were together, um, I was done. 
you know? And I didn't need that grace note um, that was in, in, in the script. Um, so if you don't have that, you can't call it the Dream of the Romans. It's just like this hideous non sequitur. Like nobody, what are there, Romans in it? Are people, it's terrible, right? So <laughs> we're going to go to Sundance. Like, well, let's just call it Arlen Faber. I like that that's simple. Um, and then no one at, at Magnolia uh, liked that. Um, they're like, is it Arlene Favor? What, what is that? Against fervor? Well, I don't know what it is. And, um, you know, they're in the business of uh, distributing a movie and marketing it. Um, and they know, they know better than I uh, what hooks might get people uh, at least interested. And so they came up with The Answer Man. Um, and that's how it's known now. And everyone loves it. So I couldn't be happier. So, is, I mean, it must be kind of like someone taking your kid, though, and saying... I don't like the name you gave your kid. I'm going to change the name, and you just have to go with it. But Well, it, I guess it is sort of like that, except what they're saying is if, if you don't change your kid's name, your kid's going to go to jail, <laughs> right? So if we change your kid's name, your kid can have a beautiful, you know, wonderful, healthy life, and you have to, like, you have to, you know, be able to give in to that. Right. Well, uh, Jeff, at the same time as you're doing all of the promotion for this film, you're also uh, on Broadway in God of Carnage, which I just saw two nights ago. And if people in this audience have not seen it, you must go. Although you're taking a break for a few, a six weeks or so and then coming back. Uh, yeah, we're going to play through next Sunday, the 26th, and then we're, we'll come back uh, right after Labor Day through middle of November, and then they'll probably get a new cast, and it'll run for 27 years. <laughs> One thing that I was thinking about, because I saw it late in the, in the run, relatively, I mean, it's, it's one act, it is 90 minutes, it is so lightning-paced and sharp, and so much of it, obviously, the whole time, you, basically all four of you are on the stage. I was wondering how much, if at all, do the four of you, James Gandolfini, Marsha Gay Harden, Hope Davis, and yourself, try to mix things up to keep it interesting for yourselves, also knowing that the, most of the audience is seeing it for the first time, so you want to keep it pure, uh, as, like, almost as it was for opening night? I mean, how much leeway is there, wiggle room? Um, it, there are certain things uh, that once you find them, certainly jokes or timings on jokes, uh, you try to hang on to that timing. It really becomes a choreographed one and a two and a here's the line. And you, you try not to screw with that too much. But there are, there are speeches, there are one-on-ones that you really go into each, each one of those every night with whatever you got. And you try not to let it vary too much because you were directed a certain way, but there is some wiggle room in there to keep it alive. And, and everybody is looking each other in the eye, and if somebody's particularly angry about something that happened in the day and you're unloading at, during the show that night, uh, you'll get a response back. I mean, and you use it. You, you take whatever you've got in your day because it's a, it's a play where people behave very, very, very badly. And um, so you, you be, it's, it's like just spewing out all this bile that you have. And so, yeah, sometimes it can veer off or be more intense than others. I, well, it's interesting that you talk about that because it brings up another thing about The Answer Man, which is that really with Squid and the Whale and so many of the great performances you've had lately, you have been playing these bastards in, in many ways. But it is with this film, even though there's some qualities like that in, this, in Arlen Faber, it really is a true romantic leading role. And that must have been really refreshing. I mean, you're, there's no crazy beard that you're that you're sporting, I mean, you're really letting that side of yourself show through. That must have been fun. Well, it's nice to be able, the range, you know, to create a range of being able to play guys like 
you know, from Dumb and Dumber to Squid and the Whale and Gettysburg and to be all over the map and then to be dropped into a romantic comedy and, and to be able to, to hold it up is, is uh, I like the challenge of trying to do all those things. But, you know, playing guys that are flawed, uh, they don't necessarily know they're flawed. You know, like the guy in Squid and the Whale thought he was right. And that's how he went about his day in every scene. And it was the script that told you he was wrong. But as far as Bernard was concerned, no. No, Mar the marriage fell apart and it wasn't his fault. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. So that's how, as an actor, that's how you go at it. So now that you have your first film under your belt, it's coming out. It's played all the festivals. You've done all the PR. You have a second script completed, correct? Yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> trying to put it together right now. It's called uh, Christmas in New York. Hello, New York. Um, obviously takes place at Christmas in New York, and it's, um, I, I really love this story, and it's the kind of Christmas movie that I, I'd love to see, and so I want to make it so that I can see it, um, and hopefully other people can see it too. It's just six, uh, six different stories that all drive toward Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the idea being that regardless of what your beliefs might be about Christmas, that even though you usually feel like the world's against you, there's two days of the year the world's actually on your side. You know, there's two days of the year that someone will let you in in traffic or hold the door for you. I mean, the banners in the street say peace and kids are singing songs about angels, okay? So if you want to take your shot at being the person that you hoped you could be, it's never going to get any easier. Um, and I hope to make that, I hope to be back here soon. And I have to say, I was embarrassed, Jeff, to know, uh, not to know until last week that you were, that you were also a musician. It, you, you've hid this very well. <laughs> but um, you actually have two CDs, that you, one that's live, one that's recorded, you played from Grandfather's Hat. And you, you give a lot of the proceeds, if not all the proceeds, to the Purple Rose Theater Company, which you founded in your hometown in Michigan. Um, but is it, is it a release for you? I mean, is it something you've been doing since you were a teenager? How did this all happen? I've been writing since uh, I've moved to New York in the 70s, so it's just something I did on the back porch. It was just for me, but um, about eight years ago, in order to raise money, they decided to, uh, you alright? <coughs> they decided to uh, put me on stage to see if we could raise some money. I mean, anybody, anytime anybody wants to, that's not like a symbol or like a metaphor of take a walk, will you? Wrong side. Wrong side. That happened to Gandolfini the other night. Ooh. Yeah, that he, he had, uh, and it actually happened yes, to me. Yes, that was the night I was there, two nights ago. He started coughing. Oh, yeah. No, that wasn't the really bad one. Oh. Though there was one, I eat this clafuti in the, in the, in the Broadway play. It's, it's like a crumb cake thing. And I got to slam four slices of that very quickly in the first 20 minutes. And I've got it timed that that hunk is going down in between that line and that line. And I was doing a show three, four weeks ago, and I, it just went down the wrong pipe. And, and you're on stage in front of 1,100 people, and I just decided that I, had a, I was a cat with a hairball. And I just... And I didn't... I mean, we're four months into this show, and, I, and Gandolfini, it doesn't take much to break this guy up. So I just stood over there on the side of this, knowing I couldn't. That's all I, that's all I could do. I just stood over there and just... I did like 10 of them. The play, 1,100 people are stopped. Gandolfini's looking at me. He's cracking up. And finally, on the 10th one, a little slice of coffee cake comes out and lands. I'd like given myself the Heimlich. And then I just kept going. The girls were completely petrified. 
The Gandolfini was cracking up. Why do we start talking about this? The, the, something jogged this Because memory. I was dying. Oh, right, of course. Well, there's also a moment where I don't want to say much, but the flowers are thrown yeah. and they land in fun places. At least yeah. they did the other night. I mean, that, that's got to be the fun of it, too, just to see where these... There are all kinds of funny things that happen. The one night, um, uh, we answer the phone countless times in this play, and Jim has a cordless phone he's got to answer. And somehow, in the, in the craziness of the show, the phone had dropped off its cordless no. you know, base. And so Jim goes over to answer the phone, and it's a phone call from his mother, and he's going to hand it to me. And we can't find the phone. <laughs> it's ringing. It's supposed to ring about three times, and then Jim goes, hello, mom. And it rang 15, 20 times. Jim's looking for it. He's pushing me out of the way, looking, thinking I'm sitting on it. Eventually, all four of us are searching the stage, and the stage manager just kept it ringing, kept it ringing, and it was it had fallen inside a filing cabinet on the ba on the bottom <laughs> thing, and I just happened to open it up, going, "Oh God!" And then I just and I held it up, and the audience cheered. Wow! It was just great because because it's a stage phone, the actual phone isn't ringing, right? So it's not like you can try to hear where it is. The sound Correct. is yeah, right. it's so it's, a, it's a sound cue. Right. Well. Uh, I mean, one of your um, on-screen love interests in the past, Ed Harris, um, he, he's a musician, too. He actually wrote and performed the closing credits song on Appaloosa, which is the Western that he uh, directed. And he sounds just like Johnny Cash, which was very kind of cool and trippy to listen to. H have you ever shown off your musical chops on, on film? No, I don't. Uh, you know, if it's there. Somebody wants it. I, I do more. I do more one to raise the money, but also... I just enjoy it, you know? If they want to listen, great. If they don't, that's fine. But, you know, I, I know that the last thing the world needs is another actor-singer-songwriter. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. Yeah. I, one of the songs I wrote was, If William Shatner Can, I Can Too. And, uh, and, and just, so I have fun with it. And then, but I enjoy going around, especially to, not the New Yorks and Chicago's and Boston so much, but the Oshkoshes and the Ellsworth Mains, Ellsworth Mains and the... Uh, uh, Rock Island, Illinois. You know, there ain't a lot to do on rock, in Rock Island on a Saturday night. And when the guy, one of the guys from Dumb and Dumber shows up with a guitar, <laughs> you're going to pay full price and see whatever the hell this is. So it's a great time. It's a great time. You show them there are 800 people just sitting there ready to have a great time. And you find out, you know, you sing Dirty Harry, you sing, you know, all those songs that make them laugh and, and make sure they have a good time. You know? You've been doing this now for 30 years. Now you've, you're... You're getting the girl, which you've done before, but you're getting, you're getting the girl here. You've done the action. You've done the animated voice things. Is there anything that you haven't done, any kind of role or kind of film that you have never done that you're anxious to do? No, not really. I don't, I don't think that way. I just, whatever comes along. I keep waiting for it to end, to be honest. I keep, I'm very fatalistic about it. That's one of the reasons why I moved back to Michigan after 10 years in New York. I, just, I didn't go to L.A. I moved to Michigan and raised the kids there thinking the career would end any minute and it didn't and dumb and dumber certainly bought me 10 years or more and and you know kept doing stuff and so all right it's still going but now i don't I, I don't have screenplays under my arm trying to get them done i'd rather write plays for the theater company and do this and answer the phone when a well-written screenplay calls you know how about any questions from the uh from the audience members 
Well, you were just talking about how you got started in music. You, oh, you asked yeah, yeah, the question, yeah, yeah. what was it, a teenager? No, no, no I got it, yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I did it on the back porch. It was strictly for me. It was, a, it was kind of a musical diary. I, I really, it was a way to kind of stay creative between phone calls, and especially as a young actor, it could be three months of sitting there waiting for the agent to say, you actually got called back for an audition, let alone the audition. So um, I, 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 it was a way to kind of stay creatively alive. And I worked at it. I got better at it. I studied Stefan Grossman and Doc Watson tab books. I mean, I really tried to figure out the finger pick and blues thing. And, and it was a great hobby, you know? It, it, music can make you go away. It can take you away from this crazy, crazy business I'm in. And it helped a lot. It was only when the Purple Rose needed, we needed money. We always need money, but as a nonprofit. But Christmas week and New Year's week, we were dark. We were between shows. And they had forced me to play in a bar one song like a year before. And so they knew it was there, but I hadn't showed it to them. And they said, why don't we put the celebrity out and sell tickets? And even if it's a train wreck, we'll raise some money. And it was. It was a train wreck. It was the most frightening thing I'd ever done in my life. And, but I learned how to do it. And, I would, and every year, and I'm going to go back again this year for like the eighth year. And after about three or four years, I understood it. And then I started going out to the Oshkoshes and the Rock Islands. And, and it traveled. The music, you know, the song about Dirty Harry, it travels. You can play that anywhere. And then it got to be fun. And then I enjoyed it. And then I could make some money at it. Um, and at the same time, help the theater. And... And then my sons were interested in music, so then we, you know, we'd go on the road together. They were my roadies, and you know, it, was, it became this father-son's thing that was kind of cool. So, you know, the movies can call, but I'm going to be doing a lot of gigs, too, you know. Which is weird, because, you know, are you going to... There's something attractive about playing in Rock Island, Illinois, and something despicable about walking the red carpet at the Golden Globes. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I, uh, I walked the red carpet at the Golden Globes one time and literally got elbowed out of the way by a desperate housewife. It's a true story. I won't name names, but... Thanks. Um, this is for both of you. Um, Arlen Faber is someone who is looked to for answers, and he doesn't have the answers. Do either of you feel that in your personal or professional lives that people look up to you um, looking for answers and you don't have them at all? That's got to be for you. <laughs> I, you know, I, oftentimes you do. It depends what it's about, of course. But if it's a young actor asking career questions or just... Uh, the craft of acting questions, there's usually some kind of answer that might work for them. But there's also, I don't know is a good answer too. Yeah. I don't know, you know, that, but, but good luck trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure that out too, whatever the subject may be, so. I mean, I guess in terms of, you know, I mean, people have asked me uh, now that um, this movie is actually coming out, um, <clears throat> I'm one of the, the few people that I've known in the 11 years in Los Angeles that's actually gone from waiting on tables or having any production job you know, that you can imagine to this now um, amazing success in, in my eyes. Um, and I don't know, the only advice that ever really worked for me was um, 
just find the people that do what you want to do and do what they did. Like, that's it, you know? Um, you can, there can be a big book about it. There can be, you know, a pamphlet or a word from a stranger. But, like, when it comes down to it, whether it's you want to get better on the inside or the outside, there's some kind of effort that, that needs to take place on your part. And, and thank God, someone's probably done that before you. You know what I mean? Someone's probably walked that way first. And if you, uh, if you have what it takes, and by what it takes, I mean, like, the desire to, uh, the ability to not make yourself special enough, right, that you don't have to follow in somebody else's footsteps, um, then the path is kind of laid out. And usually it's uh, hope you get lucky and work harder than anyone you know. There's one right here. Hey, Jeff, do you write your own, your own music? Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I, I write... <clears throat> I'm very observational, so I'll, I'll take things and, and just, if it feels like a hook for a song that I might be able to play in a set somewhere, then I'll probably chase it and write it. But I don't write for other people. I don't try to write hits. I don't, you know, it's just stuff that might make the set list, you know, or that, and if it doesn't, then it goes into the notebook and becomes part of that diary. Well, thank you all for, for coming today. Thank you for your attention, for your questions. John Heineman, Jeff Daniels, The Answer Man. Thank you all very much. See you next time.